This week's episode is brought to you by SketchWallet. SketchWallet provides some awesome products for artists on the go, like travel size sketch pads, pencils, and of course, let's not forget SketchWallet's feature product, the SketchWallet. It's a handy little high quality wallet made from real durable materials that acts as a wallet for your mini sketch pad and pencil and things you'd normally keep in your wallet. And it fits right into your back pocket or purse. Then when you fill up your sketchbook, they make it easy to refill your sketch wallet with easily reloadable materials that you can order right off the website. So head to sketchwallet.com T-A-N right now to check out their beautifully made leather options as well as their budget and vegan friendly canvas options coming soon. Again, that's sketchwallet.com T-A-N. This is the Animation Network. With this podcast, you get to tune in every week to hear top industry professionals in my network discussing network animation. Our goal here is to bring you effective tips, tricks, secrets, and practices for breaking into and navigating through the current landscape of TV animation. I'm your host, Chris Wimberly. Thanks for tuning into the network today. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Animation Network Podcast, episode 89. This episode is definitely a must listen, so either get your notebook ready, open up a Word document, whatever you need to take some notes because you are not going to want to miss all of this knowledge that is about to be dropped on this episode. We're going to be covering a lot of topics you guys have been asking us about. So if you are interested in storyboarding or if you are interested in any of the story trainee programs at DreamWorks or Disney, and if you're international, this is an episode you want to listen to and take down some notes. So I'm not going to hold you back any longer because I know you guys are like, let's just get to it. Stop talking. And I'll be talking during the rest of the episode, let's be honest. Uh, So I'm going to just step back and I'm going to let you listen. So here is episode 89, Simon Thelning. All right, recording again. Excellent. This time, this will be the one. I can feel it in my bones. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome to another episode of the podcast. Have a great guest here for you guys today, which I think you're going to really enjoy hearing about. So we'll, I'll just let him introduce himself and won't give everything away. But why don't we start off with who you are, what you do, where you're working, that stuff. Yeah, my name is Simon Thelning. I'm uh, currently a story apprentice at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Uh, I'm doing a little work on Racket Ralph 2 right now. So. Awesome. And I'm really excited to have you on because unlike the rest of the guests we've had on so far, you're actually from further, further, further away and coming all the way from Australia. And so can you talk about your transition coming over from Australia to the States and sort of what kind of motivated that jump to come over here and start working? Yeah. Uh, I originally came to the States in 2011 as an exchange student. Uh, I was studying at the ANU, the Australian National University in Canberra, and I was interested in in animation. I'd done a little bit and, you know, I wanted to pursue that further as well as travel the world. So I applied and came over to CCA, the California College of the Arts in Oakland. And I was there for a semester and learned a whole lot and enough to realize that I knew nothing and I wasn't at all ready to be in the industry, but I was about to graduate in a semester back home. So I went back home and I did my last semester, made a little film and reapplied to CCA to come back for a second degree. So I was there for another two years, two and a half years. Okay. And while you were at school, what did you end up studying while you were there? And uh, were you kind of one of those people who knew exactly what they wanted to do? Or did you just kind of figure it out as you were going along? Yes and no. When I was coming out of high school, I um, I kind of just rediscovered my love of animation the incredibles had just come out and that was that was a huge impact on me and so i would this is terrible advice that you shouldn't do instead of studying for my final high school exams i just watched classic movies and watched classic like uh but i was also you know researching behind the scenes stuff and you know i was reading about who john lasseter was and who brad bird was and stuff like that and I 
knew about CalArts from that, from, you know, all of this research, but being from kind of just a working class town in Australia, it, it, it didn't enter my mind. Oh, why don't I just apply there? Why don't I, I move to, you know, try and go to a school in America and learn this stuff? Things that things like that that are really obvious that just didn't enter my mind or a recurring motif throughout my career. So I ended up going to an art school that was basically just ne- next to where I live, the ANU School of Art, uh, largely because I was like, well, it's an art school. I didn't really understand that, you know, different art schools have different focuses and they're not all created equally. And, uh, you know, you should really handpick, you should really choose carefully about the one you go to and if it lines up with what it is you actually want to get out of it. Uh, so I entered there as a printmaking major because the title was actually drawing and printmaking and I wanted to learn to draw. So it just seemed like an obvious choice for some reason. Uh, I originally wanted, I, I kind of wanted to be like a concept artist in games or in film and stuff at that point. Games was kind of my first love. So I applied there and I went to the the uh, interview to get into the drawing and printmaking department and they asked me because you know I mentioned I was really into animation and game and film and all that stuff and they asked me well why don't you just go to a technical like our equivalent of like a technical college where you can learn how to use Maya and things like that and the answer I gave was kind of pretentious in retrospect but still I don't know I think it informed my career and helped me in the long run I said I didn't want to just learn how to use a computer program. Um, I wanted to learn how to be an artist so that then I could use a computer program to make art, you know, to say something with it. And so they accepted me into the department and I did that for two years and hated it not to disparage (laughs) um, printmaking. It's a beautiful craft and I I love looking at a, a good print, but I didn't enjoy doing it at all. But in my second year, I got to do a, uh, a complimentary class in animation taught by a really great helpful teacher called Lucien Leon, where the expectation being more of just an arty farty, uh, you know, traditional art school is go in and just make something. And so I was like, well, I'll make a little film, not fully grasping the gravity of that. So I became obsessed with that and I was learning Maya and I was like building building models and stuff and boarding and not really knowing what I was doing and just like made a little film and that you know that sank sank its teeth into me and helped me realize like oh this this is this is where I'm meant to be it was the first time that I'd made something that felt finished to me like I'd always drawn and things like I wanted to be a concept artist so it always kind of felt like every drawing I was doing was prep work for a bigger idea but then once I put something out there that it's like, you know, it has a beginning and a middle and an end and it fades to black and credits pop up. It was the first time I'd felt that I'd actually expressed what it was that I was imagining that someone could sit down and watch Mm. what, you know, what ultimately I'd wanted to make. So after that, I transferred into the digital media department and I was there for a year doing uh, a mix of things. Like I made some live action shorts and I was doing some web, web coding stuff and I was doing some experimental sound design and trying to keep pushing, trying to keep learning how to animate and all that stuff. Uh, but you know, there was still that yearning, like, Oh, okay. I want, I want to be making feature animation or I want to be making, you know, real cartoons. So I uh, applied to CCA and went over for there. But while I was there, I was still, uh, torn because, you know, I'd come out of this background where the, where I'd, I'd learned animation just by doing it and doing every facet of it from boarding and modeling and animating and doing uh, compositing and sound design. And I loved doing every, every aspect of it that it was hard to narrow down which one I should be trying to do as a career. Uh, so for a while I, you know, I, I was, you know, I thought I was going to be a character animator. I thought I was going to be a concept artist. I thought I was going to be, um, maybe a board artist, but then I kind of was like, nah, that's dumb. That's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, in my junior year, I was super lucky, which is the other recurring motif in my career. I managed to get, uh, an internship at like a house up in Portland. 
so Leica House, for people that don't know, was Leica's commercial division. It was actually where the company started. It was originally Will Vinton Studios, and then Travis Knight bought it and made it Leica, and then they started doing features, but it was originally this commercial place. So I went up there as a concept and storyboard design intern, so I got to do a little bit of design and a little bit of boarding, and I got pulled in to help with a bit of fabrication for the stop motion stuff and a whole bunch of just odd jobs. Like every couple of days, it was a new project. So I, I got to do all this stuff in a professional environment, but in little bite-sized pieces. So I got to really find out what my strengths were and like what I actually enjoyed doing day to day. Um, and that's, you know, finally about halfway through my senior year, I was like, oh, I think I got it. Guys, <laughs> I'm Simon Thonic story artist. I'm going to start putting that on my resume. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until my last semester, I spent half of my last semester building a story portfolio because mm. I was just scrambling to get something together to apply for, you know, other internships and things like that. And yeah, so it came down to the wire. <laughs> At least you figured it out. Yeah. I think I was 25 at the time. It's how far you go, not not how fast you get there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you you were at Like a House, and I know you did the exchange. Were there any other internships you did either during school or maybe it, they came like right after school? And then also, if you could talk a little bit about like what it was like doing internships as an international student, or if you kind of ran into any problems with that, and what that was like for you. Yeah, uh, Leica was the only internship I did. Uh, for some some reason, I, again, part two of bleeding obvious that I should have realized. Uh, the year before, I didn't apply to any. And then that year, I, I decided that I really wanted to just get some sort of experience. And I wasn't going to, like, in my mind, waste my time on these, like, pipe trees, like applying to Pixar or Disney and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I just applied to a bunch of like kind of local startups and things like that around the Bay Area. And none of them got back to me. Uh, but one that did was, you know, this one game place. And I'd actually verbally, like I'd gotten it, I interviewed. I'd gotten it. But since I was an international student, there's like, you know, kind of a paper trail you have to go through before you can get you know, the, the green light to actually sign on the line. So that had taken a couple of weeks. Um, but in the meantime, at CCA in junior year, at the end of your junior year, you have a thing called junior review where you kind of like, you put up your body of work and talk a bit about yourself and what you ought to be when you grow up. And they bring in some external artists to, uh, you know, to kind of help guide you, give you feedback and all that. And again, super lucky. Uh, a director from like a house just happened to be swinging by the school just then and he saw my stuff and liked it and recommended me for that internship. So the day that I was going, like everything had gotten cleared and I was going to go sign the line for that other internship I'd gotten applied that I'd applied for. Uh, I was leaving my house and I got an email from Leica. <laughs> um, so I just had this like this one day of like, holy crap, like what do I do? <laughs> uh, in hindsight, I, I probably still probably would have taken the Leica thing, but I would have burned, I probably would have burned the other bridge a lot more severely than I did had I already signed that. So in a way, being an international student in that scenario kind of helped out a little, <laughs> you know, having to get bogged down in red tape. Every now and then, apparently, it's a good thing. But yeah, uh, that was at the end of my junior year. So that was the only internship I ever did. And if you're still in, in school, I implore you not to make that same mistake I did. I like to mix metaphors in this one and tell people to cast a wide net, but set a high bar. Mm. So aim, you know, aim for your pipe dreams, your Disney's, your Pixar's and stuff. But recognize sometimes it's just statistical things. They get thousands of applications. And if you hear back from the game company in the Bay Area, the startup, then, you know, you've got you've got something that's a place to start. Yeah, better than nothing. And that's also another thing we kind of bring up is just, you know, apply everywhere if you can. Mm -hmm. The worst they can say is no. Yeah. Or you just don't hear anything. Yeah, that's the that's actually the worst thing is they never (laughs) get back. Yeah. But, you know, you never know what can happen. You might get that pipe dream, Mm -hmm. which is always amazing when that happens. So you finish up at school and now you have a better idea of kind of what you're interested in, what you're 
kind of aiming towards with being a storyboard artist. What did you do after you graduated? What was kind of like the next thing you went on to do? Yeah, so I was super lucky that I got hired pretty much straight out of school. Uh, But there was this horrible dark week of my life because being an international student, if I didn't get hired immediately, then I was going to have to leave. And I know it felt like me to me at the time, like basically that's the end of my career. Like I can't come back to, um, so graduating is already super stressful and an existential crisis for people at the best of times. And then I had that. So I'd gotten my story portfolio together and I'd sent it out to places and I got, the test for the DreamWorks feature traineeship, which was just mind-boggling to me. So I busted it trying to, you know, get that get that test in. I sent it in. I got the test, for a, a test from Nickelodeon to be a story revisionist on um, Wally Kazam, which is a preschool show. And I sent those both off. And my last day of college, I got, you know, the call from DreamWorks that I didn't get the traineeship that hadn't made the cut and I hadn't heard back from Nickelodeon. So like I sat through my, my uh, senior show pretty depressed. And then there's just a couple of days where, you know, I, I just, what I didn't know what I was going to do. Then a week later, um, I got a call back from Nickelodeon asking, you know, I, I did a phone interview with Dave Palmer, who is a wonderful person. And, uh, I, who I owe a lot to and was our mutual associate producer. So that was good. And then I got a call back from another feature place that I'd applied for, for their traineeship. And so those, all of a sudden I was faced with like the worst, the, the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. But obviously I'm, you know, a pretty good problem to have. Um, the issue was the traineeship at this feature place was meant to last like six months or something. And then out of four trainees, they were only going to hire two. So there was a 50-50 chance that in a couple of months, I was going to have exactly the same problem. Uh, the other thing was they were on the other side of the country. So um, if that happened, I would have been, you know, stuck out on the East Coast with none of my contacts and not as much of an industry. And uh, I'd also just a couple of years before completely uprooted my life and moved out to California. And, you know, I'd... I'd, I'd made a lot of close friends that had kind of become my de facto family. And I just not, wasn't sure I was emotionally prepared to do that again so quickly. Uh, so it was a really hard decision because at the time I really wanted to be in feature. But I ended up taking the gig with Wally Kazam and moving out of Burbank and starting at Nickelodeon. So I started about three weeks or a, or a month after I graduated. So you're at Wally Kazam, you're a storyboard revisionist. Mm-hmm. What came after that? Yeah, so I was a revisionist on Wally for, I think, about six months uh, before they offered to promote me to be uh, the floater board artist, which is a really um, unflattering name for basically uh, I would jump from episode to episode and do little uh, parts of each. So, like, we'd have a little cold open and I would I would do that before the titles played or there'd be a little song at the end and I would do that or just, like, in between things that they needed help on. Um, and then that lasted about another six months. And then we found out that Wally Kazam was getting canceled on the same day that we found out we'd gotten nominated for a bunch of Emmys. Yeah. So, was wonderful. <laughs> uh, so all of a sudden I was in that free fall again because, you know, I'm losing your job is stressful at the best of times and then losing your job and, you know, having to move back across the, the world is, a, you know, mounting pressure. So... I, I was applying for a bunch of stuff and I'd get like interviews and I'd get bites from things, but they couldn't cover my visa in time. Cause they'd, you know, this, this industry, a lot of the time they need you to start next week Yeah, and it takes time for these things. So I ended up starting as a board artist on Shimmer and Shine downstairs, which was another Nick Jr. show. Yeah. Which then that was my first real experience. I think of being like in an, in the trenches board artist where I just get a script and I'm responsible for just making the episode. Uh, so Shimmer and Shine lasted about a year. I was on their first season. I did, I think, like eight episodes or something like that. And after that, it had been two years since I'd graduated and DreamWorks were looking for feature trainees again. And so I applied. In the meantime, during all this, I'd been taking classes at CDA with uh, Tron Mai, who's like a wonderful teacher. And I developed a bit of a relationship with DreamWorks as well. So I submitted again and I got the test again 
which was exactly the same prompt as the last time I'd done it. Uh, so that was difficult because when, when you're doing one of these tests, you want to show your strengths. You want to show kind of what you bring as a story artist, what your eye is, what your sensibility is. And having exactly this, having to do exactly the same test, but do that while also doing something completely different so that you don't look like a one-trick pony was really tough. But I did the test again uh, while I was working full-time, which was pretty grueling, and submitted it and ended up getting a callback for the DreamWorks traineeship that I'd gotten rejected for two years before. Oh, wow. So without batting an eye, I accepted that and started at DreamWorks last year in 2016. And so that was, you know, pretty revelatory for me because that, that, that was an albatross I'd been carrying on my back for a while. And yeah, so we trained, we did a training program for, uh, I think, three or four months doing kind of like a, a dummy project just to get us up to speed. And then during this time, DreamWorks had gotten bought by Com- Comcast and Universal and everything like that. So people were starting to get laid off and, you know, Axe was looming over projects and all of that. And so it was, we, we weren't sure if we were going to get kept on. And so I kind of just went into, you know, put on my parachute and started just sending out applications just in case. And one of them I sent to, I was like, yeah, why not? I guess and I sent it to Disney for their apprenticeship. Uh, I was, I was lucky. I got put onto the Trolls holiday special, which was so much fun. And it comes out November 24th. <laughs> so these people should watch it. Uh, and then, but then ended up getting a callback from Disney asking if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to interview for that. And I was like, well, sure. I'll be able to tell my friends that I interviewed at Disney once. So that, <laughs> that'd be neat. And went over and then for some reason they hired me and I started there at, you know, I decided to start there in March. It was a, it was a really tough decision because I was, I was, you know, really happy and enjoying it at DreamWorks and I loved the people I was working with, but ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively young and, uh, you know, I work in animation and may as well try and work at Disney once, you know. So, yeah, that's where I am right now. So we did another training with uh, another group of, of apprentices uh, for three months and we each got placed on a on a movie. So right now I'm working on Wreck-It Ralph for now. Then I'm meant to rotate on something else, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Oh, but that's great you're able to do the trainee programs because that's... It's like you always hear about them. I think you're the first person I've actually met who's actually done one or actually done two. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty awesome to kind of hear more about that. Something you said earlier is reminded me of another question I wanted to ask, which is we have a lot of people from outside of the country who listen in and they also want to break into the animation industry out here. We even have some people in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that process or if you have any kind of like advice or insights for them to kind of help them prepare for this is what probably you should expect when trying to like make that jump from your country to come over here and be in animation yeah so unfortunately i don't have universal good news because i think it's always going to be an uphill battle it's always hard like unless you're lucky enough to have been born a dual citizenship or something like that uh for australian people uh it is slightly easier again extremely lucky uh, without being too inside a baseball about how visas work, um, the regular, the, the work visa that most people get is the H-1B. They only give so many of those out a year. So even if, I believe, even if you uh, get accepted for a job and they're willing to sponsor you and everything like that, I think it's like a one in four chance or something like that. It's a lottery system at the end of the day. So it just comes down to luck, which is heartbreaking because I have, like so many friends from countries like Israel and things like that that are just amazing and they've not been able to get a job because they just can't get that to come through. With Australia, um, there's the E3 visa, meaning uh, which functions almost the same, but essentially there's no lottery system because they haven't given out as many. So if you get a job and they're willing to to um, to sponsor you for it, then you know, you're pretty much guaranteed to have gotten it. So it's, it's slightly easier, but it's still a huge thorn in your side. Um, again, like, you know, I've, I've missed out on opportunities because they just couldn't do it in time. And, you know, hopefully you can persevere and it will end up happening. Uh, if you are one of those people where you think, you know, in your future there's, there's visa applications and things that might be happening, 
One completely unrelated to animation piece of advice I would give is to start keeping a really detailed calendar and uh, really detailed records. Uh, for instance, so do you know what date did you start at Cartoon Network? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, and it's one you're going to have to ask. It's one you're going to have to answer every time you get a visa. So just having a nice calendar, you can quickly look up things like that. Uh, I'd, I'd really recommend it. It'll make your life a lot easier. But in the grander scheme, I don't have any particularly warming words for people, and I'm, I'm hesitant to give... Uh, you know, legal immigration advice when I don't fully understand it myself. I'm sure this was still helpful. <laughs> I'm sure even, like you said, you're not like the keeper of all the legal immigration <laughs> policies and rules, but still just, I'm sure just hearing kind of your story and just what you have to say on it will be extremely helpful yeah. to people. Yeah, you guys do industry mixes, right? We do, we do. And yeah. we've had some people from Australia come out too, yeah. which is like pretty awesome, so... And I think one um, one option, maybe I, I've met people who've done this. Uh, you can come out on uh, you know a visa waiver, waiver program, and you can do uncredited courses. So you couldn't do enroll in college, but you could go to like CDA or something like that, and you know at least help build your network and help you learn directly from people who are in the industry and build those skills. Um, obviously, that's going to take money, which unfortunately is the the constant in immigration as yeah. well. That's that's one one thing. If you if you really want to build a network and get a t toe out here, you can consider. Yeah, well, now that you've had uh, some more experience in the industry, like you've worked on, you know, worked in TV, had a chance to do these training programs, so I'm sure you've learned a lot within that time. What are some things that you've learned that you feel have kind of helped you become a better board artist? Yeah, going back to the pretentious answer I gave to the printmaking people at ANU. Um, if you want to stand out and be more than just a wrist drawing pictures for people, try and be as thoughtful and deliberate as you can, especially with filmmaking. It's a film is just made up of several thousands, tiny little decisions, one after another, and all of them impact the story you're telling and how you tell it. Uh, and so you should have a reason for why you're making each one. Um, are you cutting, you know, why do you cut wide in this particular instance? Do you want the character to feel lonely or do you, are you cutting in close because it's a big revelation you want to see their expression change? Um, try and, with everything you're doing, no matter what it is, uh, what is the story about and what is the scene about? If you're doing a scene where it's a guy dropping his daughter off at school, Okay, is it literally about that, or is it about you know this this guy has finally learned to trust his daughter enough to let her go and be her own person and like why are we illustrating this moment? What is the mm -hmm. deeper meaning behind it? And try and attack it from that level more than just the surface level. Remember that you're a visual storyteller, and so the the more you can distill a story down into one image, uh, the better. We're not normally as much in the uh, in the trade of talking heads mm. in animation, and you know that's that's for a couple of reasons. Um, in a, in a live action movie, when when we're working with a photograph of a real actor, as as human beings, we see a picture of another human being, and we can immediately relate to it, and we can um, we can read all of those little those little touches, like if we point a camera at. I don't know, John C. Riley's face, and he's got this great expressive face, but he also has all of these, you know, hundreds of little muscles that he can, he can use and project these, uh, these subtleties. With animation, we've purposefully abstracted our characters and removed a lot of that information, and we just don't have the tools to rely on just having a simple close-up and going back and forth with, you know, in a conversation. And in addition to that, and feel free, you know, feel free to disagree with this and test it. Like keep testing it and things, but keep it in mind. Uh, generally, filmmaking in in animation is a little more conservative. It follows the rules a little more in terms of like you know breaking the line, uh, not breaking the one eighty line, uh, and trying to keep your um your point of focus at the same kind of part of the screen when you cut around and things. Uh, I think for that reason, because you know it, it takes us. There's a couple of you know, there's a couple of frames, there's milliseconds to 
uh, reorder those the abstract lines and colors and shapes we're seeing into being, you know, a, what we're meant to believe is a figure rather than cutting immediately to a picture of a photograph that we can immediately see. So uh, try and remember what medium you're working in. And uh, something that honestly I, I, I'm still always working on, well, I'm still always working on every single one of these. Remember that like character and acting is a huge part of uh, being a storyteller. So when I started, I was just more interested in what shots I could compose and um, you know, the kind of that aspect but how how a character reacts to a situation is really half of the story. Um, so remember to like keep it rooted in knowing who this character is, how they would feel about a situation and react to it, and being able to uh, illustrate that with some nuance and uh, specificity uh, is really going to start helping you stand apart as well. Yeah, and I remember us talking earlier... Um well, like off the podcast, but mentioning how like, you know, watching live action films is also pretty helpful in preparing yourself or kind of understanding the film language and kind of just getting more familiar with that whole world of things since they are kind of, there are similarities in some of it, especially with like film language and kind of setting up your shots, but. Yeah, um, there, there's a huge risk of this kind of incestuous relationship in animation when we only watch and learn from other animated stuff it's just like try and watch more live action movies than you do animation and and bring you know outside inspiration into it Mm -hmm. so another big group of listeners we have of the podcast are our students a lot who actually want to be storyboard artists in the industry and you know with your career so far and what you've learned you've just gave us like a whole bunch of amazing advice with their question before but I wanted to see if there is anything that you wish you knew when you were a student or just starting off in storyboarding that could kind of be passed down onto our current students now yeah um so it, it runs a little off of what I was saying but try and remember that literally half of the title is story it's not just board artists so if you're um if you're entering you're about to graduate and you're trying to decide what to make for your portfolio or you want to make a film um, and you know you want to go into story, make sure that you make something that has a clear beginning, a middle and an end. Don't make kind of an abstract trailer or something that ends with it to be continued because knowing how to finish off a story is, you know, the ending of the story is kind of the story. It's like, it's, it's the generally the moral or the point or the thesis statement. Um, so, you know, make sure you've, you're uh, flexing that muscle of, like, how do I execute a story the whole way through? Secondly, if, if, if you're not sure what sort of stuff you should be making to try and build a portfolio, I think it can be easy to worry, like, when you're not sure what your job prospects are. Like, oh, maybe I should make something that looks like it could be a planter's peanut ad, and I should probably make something that could be like a spongebob thing in case i'm talking nickelodeon or i should make something that looks like akira just in case i'm talking just make make the portfolio for the job you want i'm i'm ta- i'm saying this from kind of a point of privilege i guess because i when i was graduating my thesis state my my thesis project was a uh this frazetta 80s sword and sorcery uh heavy metal album cover Conan the Barbarian spoof thing. <laughs> and my first job was as a revisionist on Wally Kazam. I've always been trying to draw the parallels between. <laughs> but I, I, I think the more important thing was that you could look at my portfolio and see that, like, firstly, I knew how to draw. B, I knew how to stage things. C, I knew how to tell a story. And if, if you're making projects that, you know, illustrate that, I think that's more important than trying to pander specifically to, uh, you know, every audience that you might actually be Mm. applying to. And, you know, my portfolio got me close to the job that I wanted, but it didn't quite get me there, but it did get me jobs. I mean, to go on off on a slight tangent, uh, you kind of hear rumors that there's this big divide between being a feature board artist and and a TV board artist and in 
I've only been in the industry three years now, but I've, I'm still yet to actually encounter that bias. It's the same set of skills. Fundamentally, you're visually mm. telling a story. It's just one's more likely to be in letterbox. One's more likely to be in widescreen. So build the portfolio for the job you ultimately want, because you're going to be more passionate about that anyway. And when you're bringing your heart to something, it's going to look a lot better within that. Um, there's the striking the balance of, you know, representing uh, your taste, but also trying to show at least a bit of uh, flexibility within there. So if, if you keep just drawing action scenes with anime girls, like maybe try and draw a more dramatic scene with, you know, a little boy or something like that. And, mm. You know, so, you know, you want to be well-rounded within that, but it can be a different, it can be a tricky tricky balancing act but just make stuff that you like <laughs> yeah well, it seems like it doesn't hurt also to just have variety and like you're saying show kind of like a flexibility because if you're kind of doing it or making stuff that you like and you're more into that'll definitely show like okay this person's like really into their stuff and it's you know it's drawn well like you're saying the fundamentals and the basics are there but you know we can always that's why we have the tests for our shows and for movies so that you know, we can see if you can do the style, even, you know, if, if we can see that the fundamentals are there and there's like, you know, some variety, we'll kind of like assume, well, maybe they can do the style. And then that's what the test comes in. And that's what, where you kind of show that off. Like, yeah, I can do the style. It's easy. See? And then it's done. So. Yeah. Uh, one thing, and this might just contradict everything I just said. <laughs> um, if you are more interested in action and more interested in drama and things like that try and flex your muscles doing comedy because i think it's uh it can be a little easy to turn your nose up at comedy and think it's like the lower brow thing like you're not an artist with a capital a unless you're making people cry um comedy is really hard uh mm. trying to legitimately get someone to laugh and like setting up a joke and having a great punchline is a, an incredible skill and it's also 80 percent 90 percent of animation yeah. relies on its comedy. So being able to succinctly tell a joke is a huge asset to being a story artist. So I do implore people to, you know, try and flex those muscles and practice that. Yeah. And no, I, I'm glad you brought that up because comedy is a very big thing. I even know, like, especially at Cartoon Network, like when people are coming to pitch projects and things like, you know, they want comedy. That's what they love. Not that you can't do other things, obviously, like you'll have your, you know, your Koras and, you know, the kind of more dramatic or serialized things. But if you can do comedy, that, yeah, th that's a, a big plus. Yeah. So we've talked about the career, gotten all the advice. Um, so now we just want to learn a little more about you. So what are some things that you do outside of work to kind of keep your creative mind and just like creative energy flowing so you're not completely burnt out by the time you get back into work to do it all over again yeah um i do have a problem where i have too many hobbies and i'm kind of in constant rotation of which one i'm currently obsessed with but i mean generally I, video games are still my first love and beyond just playing them which i have to balance because time i only have so much time uh i'm, I'm really interested in like the game development side, like not just coding, but also um, game design and how uh, designers use this new medium to create, you know, a, a different form of expression and uh, get you to feel something in a way that is different to how a normal, you know, a movie or a book or a TV show tells a story. I fell out of the habit for a few years when I moved to the U.S., largely because I didn't have time and B because all of my books were physically on the other side of the planet. But, uh, I got back into reading like in this last year. So I, I, I try to, you know, always, even, even if I only have 15 or 20 minutes every other night to read a chapter of a book, I try to always have a novel going. Other than that, lately I've, I've started to really appreciate the time that I'm not at a screen and I'm, I don't have my headphones on and I don't have like media bombarding my senses all the time. So I've been, you know, trying to hike with my girlfriend on Sunday mornings and things like that and just kind of get out. Uh, a habit I've been trying to get into is I, I 
don't turn my phone on until I'm just about to leave in the morning. So mm. I don't know. I, I, I like getting up and kind of having a clear head and not stressing out about the world or checking social media or whatever or checking my email and just be able to like kind of get up and spend a bit of time in quiet and collect my thoughts and stretch and things and pat my cat a little before I go to work. <laughs> and uh, that helps a lot. You know, that's, those are all great things. Yeah, definitely team book and taking a break from screens and not looking at them all the time, uh, which can be hard since now it's kind of like, I think the default go-to, which is like, oh, I'm bored. Let me yeah. just go on my phone and just look at Facebook and or be on Twitter or something. So yeah, definitely switching it up and just kind of like giving your eyes a break and also just, you know, doing something different, like reading, checking out those different stories yeah. definitely helps kind of keep things fresh. Yeah. I'm also unusual in that my inordinate, opinions about games um directly translates into my job because i am working on a movie about video games so that's that's pretty cool but, yeah. yeah it all worked out <laughs> <laughs> so you're working on some cool projects what kind of inspires you to keep bringing passion to your job every day and keep you going and like this is gonna be this is the day like i'm gonna do some great stuff I think, I think this was a little more pertinent when I wasn't working on something that I, you know, adored because I, I, you know, I love the first Ralph. I love video games and stuff like that. So, you know, when, when I was working on preschool shows, it's obviously not something that I would consume, you know, be excited to consume because I'm absolutely not the target audience, not being six. But, you know, when you're working long hours on something, what I, what I always tried to keep in mind was we're really lucky working in film and TV because really it's, it's the most popular form of art. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's how it's the one art form that the majority of the population regularly consume is film and, and TV. So we reached, you know, our work's going to be seen by millions of people. And I, I think it's important that uh, kids who really are a target demographic, like they, they deserve to have good, art made for them too uh it's, it's really easy to just imagine uh ah, it's just kids whatever they, they'll, they'll they'll swallow anything uh but what you know inspired me and i'm sure inspired you and everybody else listening was was the stuff that was made by people who really cared mm-hmm. and you know they they wanted to make it they wanted to make something that was really good and kind of you know n- nutritious for for you know for your brain and for your um your sensibilities and kind of like get stopped maybe started getting us excited about visual storytelling or animation or whatever so you know i'd be working on an episode of shimmer and shine and i'd try and remember like you know what some some little kid might see this and walk away and be like you know what? that was a damn good episode of shimmer and shine <laughs> um you know and maybe it did spark something in them that it wouldn't otherwise had you know someone not tried to make make it better than it needed to be to go out the door yeah you know what I mean and I just try to remember that how incredibly lucky I am that I get to make something that people are gonna see and people are gonna think about I mean you never know what's gonna be that that one scene that like the kid sees and they're like oh my gosh just like it like changes their world you know yeah and like you're saying I think we all have that that moment where it's like we're tied to like something specifically that we've seen when when we were kids and it just kind of like pushed you or just kind of motivated you and whatever it was it was at that time to like either you know a lot of us that's why we're in animation we saw something and we were like oh this is great and now we're working alongside a lot of those people who did that yeah another thing to uh i think when when you start spending so much time with the characters with shimmer and shiners every day yeah when i started it's like oh yeah shimmer's the pink one and shine's the blue one but by the end like you've spent so much time uh, with them that you start to care about them. <laughs> well, it's like so they, like, they kind of take on a life of their own. Yeah. So you're like, this this character has this attitude. They're the, the bossy one. Or yeah. You, you just become more familiar. So to move on to a question that I like to ask, and, you know, it, it always helps me add to my repertoire of things to watch. Uh, what's your go-to animated movie or TV show to watch? Because I know you brought up Incredibles before. So I wonder if there's anything else in there. Yeah, so yeah, Incredibles is normally my my touchstone, like hand wave favorite movie because a lot, you know, a lot of it is because of it. It hit me at a really formative time 
and got me excited about animation again and stuff. And, you know, I, I don't agree with it as idealistically as I used to when it came out, but I still love it and it's a great movie to study. But, um, what never ceases to amaze me is whenever I'd watch a classic episode of the Simpsons, because mm-hmm. I've, I've been a Simpsons fan my entire life. And there are jokes that, you know, I, I'd laugh at as an eight year old or as a 10 year old. And, and I've seen these episodes time, time, time again over the last 20 years. And, uh, there's always a new level that I just never understood before. Um, you know, a, a deeper, more subversive joke or an, a, like a, a truism about life or something in there. And they're just, they're just amazing. Yeah. Simpsons is a good choice. <laughs> and it's funny since it's like, it's just one of those shows that's been on forever and it's still just, just as good. So Good, good choice, good choice. You're the first one to say Simpsons, I will really? say. Um, but that leads us into the end of our episode. So before we go, is there any like final things you want to add? Any questions you have? This is yeah. your time. Um, yeah, the, there's two things I want to add. Uh, the first thing, because before this, I, I went through your back catalog of podcasts and just like the, the amount of people that, you know, some I know personally and Others I don't. The uh, variety in in stories and different paths people have uh, taken. Like again, most of my career has been being super lucky, and you know, I I got hired out of school and things like that. But a lot of people don't, and that doesn't mean you're never going to make it. You know, um, just for, I think is important for mental health that you guys present. You know, it's not all of the wonderkins that. Yeah. <laughs> went to Cal Arts when they were 18 and then got hired before they graduated and they're like directing a movie when they're like 21 or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, there are so many more paths that you can take. I, I took the scenic route through school and, you know, I've, I've met people that worked at Disneyland for years and years before they got their PA job and then transitioned mm-hmm. into boards. There are so many different routes. So um, try not to get down on yourself when you meet someone that's, you know, 22 years old and already seems to have their whole life figured out. Uh, the other one is kind of a, this ongoing project that I've started. So we've mentioned, you know, be film literate, have watched a lot of classic movies and study those and things like that. Uh, but I understand a lot of people come from a background where it's not necessarily influenced that they might've been really into anime or something. So they've, they've seen a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Japanese animated movies, but maybe not have seen a lot of, live action movies right uh, western live action movies and so there's the list of you know top 100 afi movies you have to see when you die and that's great so you can see your citizen kane and your casablanca mm. and your rashomon and all that but i've been working on a on a more uh, digestible list of movies that you know aren't necessarily the top uh, academic movies you should study just ones you should be familiar enough with to be culturally relevant when you're in a working on a TV show or a, or in a, a film that people reference all the time. So number one, if you've never seen a movie before in your life and you only have time to watch one, watch Star Wars, <laughs> uh, the original 1977. Uh, if you can watch three movies, watch the original trilogy. If you can only watch two movies, watch Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. I think I've heard on a production at disney they used to have basically a swear jar like a, a star wars jar so whenever you reference star wars you have to put a dollar in <laughs> like i like i'm a i'm a really big star wars fan and i can't imagine functioning in this industry without being able to talk the talk of star wars number two uh raiders of the lost ark it's your classic uh visual storytelling deconstruction like so many people will go back to raiders of the lost ark uh spielberg's a master at it at visual st- storytelling and clarity the rest aren't necessarily in any order, but there's a lot of Spielberg. Uh, so E.T., Jaws, Stand By Me gets thrown out a lot, Blade Runner. My list says Alien, but I would, if, if you only have time, I would slightly more suggest Aliens. It comes up a lot more, a bit more. Uh, no Country for Old Men. Mad Max Fury Road is kind of coming up there. I would also recommend watching Mad Max too because it's, it's wonderful as well. Um, and bonus points for Game of Thrones, which <laughs> I, I've only seen the first season of. 
and it it keeps getting harder every year because they keep making more hours and I just don't know where I'm going to find the time to watch it all. So one thing you might notice about this list, if you look at it, uh, they're generally all movies that if you were a guy that came of age in the mid-80s, you would be really into. And that's probably not a coincidence because that happens to be the generation that are currently directing movies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, All great picks on the list, which I agree. I've heard Star Wars come up so many times. So uh, once I started working in the industry, definitely had to put that on my list to watch. Uh, Game of Thrones is just, it does take a long time to get caught up. So if you're just starting, good luck. You will be taken on a ride and it will probably take a good chunk of your life to finish and catch up. But worth it, I would say. Um, But yeah, a lot of great things. Some that I'm going to have to watch. I keep hearing about Mad Max Fury Road and I still need to see it. So I think think that's going to be the next thing I watch. But that is everything. So that's all my questions that I have for you. So thank you so much for being on and talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. And I like helping students. So whatever I can do. (laughs) Well, I'm sure they appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. That's the episode for today, you guys. I really hope you enjoyed it. And what did I say? Wasn't there some great pieces of advice in there from Simon? He really knows his stuff and it's always so great to just catch up and see how he's been since the last time we've talked. So if you enjoy this episode, uh, how about you tweet me your favorite part? I'm on Twitter at TRSTan1 and I would love to hear your thoughts on what you've learned today or what was something that really stood out for you. So feel free to send me a message on there. And as always, if you enjoyed the episode just so much that you can't even keep it in, feel free to share, rate, and review the episode. And also, did you get the newsletter on Friday? Because if you are in the market looking for jobs, our last newsletter really had some great tips on navigating the whole job board search and sending out those initial introduction emails. How do I do it? So make sure you go and check it out. And if you haven't checked it out because you're not subscribed, go and subscribe because you don't want to miss that because it also included some job positions where there are some studios looking for people. So make sure you're tuned into that. And as always, you guys, just thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of the Animation Network. And until next time. Networkers, don't forget to check out all of our extras online. Visit theanimationnetwork.org for events and news and helpful services. And connect with us on Twitter at TAN underscore podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash animation network podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the free newsletter and YouTube channel for additional content to boost what you've already learned here. So much free stuff. Go. Go now.